Blog Talk Radio. Learn how to take your caring and giving farther with the Caring and Funding Podcast powered by Cap America. Cap America, America's leader in cross-border philanthropy, helps corporations, foundations, wealth advisors, and individuals who wish to give internationally and with enhanced due diligence in the United States. Through its industry-leading grant management program and philanthropic advisory services, CAF America helps donors amplify their impact and ensure their gifts are made in a safe and effective manner. This caring and funding podcast is dedicated to these donors and the charities they support. Our guests are leaders in their field who join us to share tips for success and stories that inspire. Our host is Ted Hart, the CEO of CAF America. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at capamerica.org, on iTunes, and now just say, Alexa, play CAF America on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of CAF America's Caring and Funding Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome to the latest edition of the Caring and Funding Podcast. It was 2001 when the Foundation for the Carolinas received a call from then-CEO of Wachovia, now Wells Fargo, to find a way for their employees to make donations to support their employees and families who had been affected by the tragic events of September 11th. The first employee relief fund was then established, leading the way for compassionate companies to support employees in crisis. Today's Caring and Funding podcast will focus on the legal and practical aspects of establishing employee emergency and hardship relief funds. When such funds operate through a qualified nonprofit, contributions from employees as well as from companies are tax deductible and employees are not subject to tax on the grants they receive. Following IRS regulations, such funds must have rules and structures in place for oversight of the fund's operations and applying established criteria for awarding grants. A typical rule is that financial need stems from setbacks, such as medical problems that cause family members to stop working, funeral expenses, an emergency that necessitates travel, or fire, or hurricane, or earthquake that damages an employee's home. Assisting employees in need can improve workforce morale, enhance the organization's reputation, and create a culture of caring. We are going to discuss two approaches to creating such funds, along with benefits and cautions corporations should keep in mind. How these funds are legally established and how they are managed make all the difference to topics such as, will grants be tax-free to employees? Can other employees make donations to the fund? And so on. Classification as a public charity versus a private foundation is important because different tax rules apply to the operation of each. Details for these funds can be found in IRS Publication 3833. I have two expert guests who are going to help us learn both the legal and practical aspects of corporations establishing such funds. First today, Dave Shevlin, who is head of exempt organizations practice at the law firm Simpson Thatcher. Dave counsels a variety of well-known international and domestic exempt organizations, including CAF America. He also advises donors, universities, foundations, hospitals, and cultural institutions. 
long active in the American Bar Association. Dave is a past chair of the ABA's Section of Taxation, the Committee on Exempt Organizations. He has also, and ha he has also served on the Board of Directors for Doctors Without Borders USA. And welcome here to uh, the Caring and Funding Podcast, Dave Shevlin. Thank you for having me, Ted. Dave, uh, first up, uh, if you could uh, help our listeners understand the legal imperatives, the legal underpinning, if you will, of creating uh, these employee assistance uh, and hardship funds. Sure. Um, the first thing that I'd like to say in what I say to any client um, who's interested in starting a disaster relief assistance fund for um, the employees of the company is something that I never tell clients in any other circumstance, which is there is a document. It is short. It is written in plain English, and it is written very well, and it is Publication 3833. I don't often tell my clients to read documents that are issued by the Internal Revenue Service necessarily. That's my job. But it provides an excellent, short, and very clear understanding of how the very complex rules work in this area. So I want to put another plug in for Publication 3833. It's very important. Um, if you are an employer um, with employees that are uh, affected by a, a disaster, then you have several options at your disposal, but they're very important to understand the differences between these options and the overall rules and requirements that apply to them. Um, the first thing to note, in particular given the current circumstance, is that um, the COVID-19 has been declared to be a qualified disaster by President Trump. That means that certain qualified disaster relief payments um, are not taxable to employees. These include reasonable and necessary living expenses, personal expenses, uh, housing and repair expenses. It does not include uh, re reimbursement for lost wages or income. That's very, very important. And why? I'll come back to in a moment. So we have a qualified disaster on our hands and certain payments to employees are not taxable to them if they're for qualified disaster relief. An employer has several options uh, for its own contributions as well as facilitating contributions from employees. Uh, an employer can form its own employee, employer disaster relief fund that's not a charitable entity, but the problem with that is that the contributions to that entity by other employees and by the company are not necessarily tax deductible, certainly not by the employees. So employers often and smartly look for philanthropic options through which to do their disaster relief and to facilitate the contributions by other employees. One way of uh, doing that is through an employer-controlled private foundation, where the, uh, like a corporate foundation, um, the employer sets up a 501c3 entity um, and funds that entity. It's classified as a private foundation under the tax code, and it seeks to provide disaster relief assistance. Um, <clears throat> some caution regarding that. Number one, as Ted uh, mentioned at the outset of the call, you have to follow very specific rules when providing disaster relief assistance, particularly to employees. There has to be an appropriate assessment of need. 
uh, you have to uh, evaluate the applications for need and document and keep records with respect to that assessment. A lot of our clients don't have the infrastructure or the expertise to do that on their own. In addition, very important, a private foundation associated with an employer can only make payments to employees that qualify as qualified disaster relief payments. This is particularly important to understand in the current crisis. The types of expenses that we are hearing that are been most impactful and, and, and problematic right now are lost wages. Yes, people are incurring certain incremental expenses as a result of the COVID crisis, but this is not a situation of a hurricane where your house got knocked down and you need money for temporary shelter. Um, you, uh, much of the need here is based on lost wages as a result of the dramatic cessation of our economy. Those types of payments cannot be made by an employer-controlled private foundation. They're considered self-dealing. Um, so it is very critical when you are thinking about your options that if what you are trying to do is assist your employees with the fact that they have lost income as opposed to trying to reimburse them for the incidental and incremental living or uh, other uh, types of expenses that they're incurring as a result of the COVID crisis, an employer-controlled private foundation is not necessarily your expeditious um, alternative. The other options are an employer-controlled um, public charity. Again, um, this provides you with the flexibility to provide payments to employees that go beyond um, qualified disaster relief payments, so they're very, very critical. But you still have the issues of needing to make the objective assessment of need, and I forgot as well to mention earlier, you have to have an independent selection committee that chooses the recipients of the need, um, and it cannot be done by those who control the company. Um, moreover, if you form your own new organization, you have all of the associated timing and expense uh, issues associated with forming your own organization. So where we have quite a number of clients right now that are looking to quickly and meaningfully help their employees. There are organizations such as um, E4E, with which my uh, co-panelist is uh, associated, that are public charities that work with companies to establish these types of funds, that have the staff and the infrastructure and the, and, and the experience to make these assessments, to assist with the selection of recipients, and because they are public charities, to provide the type of hardship assistance that is most needed in this time and not be limited by the rules that apply to private foundations. So I'm going to just stop there for a moment, uh, Ted, as I've just taken 10 minutes to try and summarize a, a very complex and extensive area of the law and disaster relief assistance. But um, that is, that's it in a nutshell so far.
Thank you, uh, Dave, for, for doing that. Before we go on to our next panelist, what I do want to just ask you to sort of summarize of all of the, the legal details that you just shared. Uh, from your experience, what is the, the, the biggest legal misconception that corporations have when they come to you and say, I want to do this for my employees, they want to be compassionate, they want to do the right thing, where does sort of the, the legal aspect get off the rails pretty quickly in those conversations? With the presumption that I need to start my own 501c3 in order to accomplish this, as opposed yeah. to the opportunity to see that there are existing organizations that are charitable in nature that can assist with this already in existence. What, what's, the, what's the legal... Uh, definition of preferring or recommending a, a public charity that has experience in this area? Is it, is it the administrative burden, but also the, the, the very high risk of self-dealing in trying to manage that yourself as a corporation? Right. So it's, it's twofold. It's one, we've got um, very specific requirements regarding assessment of need and record keeping and independent selection which are detailed and easy to foot fault. And so there's the administrative burden and compliance issue there. And then very importantly, as I said, and I can't reiterate it enough because it's so relevant in the current situation, that employer-controlled private foundations are limited to providing qualified disaster relief payments. Public charities have a broader category of hardship assistance that they can help with. And that is particularly critical given the type of uh, loss and help that employees and, and those affected by the disaster are experiencing with respect to COVID. Absolutely. So, Dave, as, uh, as I, I said at the beginning, the how this is established, how you create uh, your, your fund legally makes all of the difference. So based on the recommendation uh, from uh, Dave Shevlin, partner at Simpson Thatcher, uh, we are going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to introduce our next panelist who is going to share with us the practical aspects of opening a fund with a public charity. And we will be right back. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at capamerica.org, on iTunes, or just say, Alexa, play CAF America on TuneIn. Now, back to the Caring and Funding Podcast and our host, Ted Hart. And we are back, and our guest, Holly Welsh-Stubbing, is Executive Vice President at the Foundation for the Carolinas, where she has led a team of professionals that grew assets from $180 million to $2.5 billion. She also serves as President and CEO of CAF America's partner, E4E Relief, the foundation's social enterprise subsidiary, providing employee relief funds to large, and mul large multinational corporations. Holly is also a German Marshall Fund Marshall Memorial Fellow and a recipient of the Charlotte Business Journal's Women in Business Award and 40 Under 40 recognition. Holly holds a global executive MBA from Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business and a JD from the University of Dayton School of Law. Holly is a member of both the North Carolina 
and Tennessee Bar Associations. Welcome here to the Karen Funding Podcast, Holly Welsh Stubbing. Thank you. So glad to be here, Ted. Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. You were in the green room listening uh, to Dave Shevlin when he very clearly outlined the legal imperative for these employers uh, who want to do the right thing. They want to, um, these compassionate companies want to support their employees in crisis. Uh, But Dave could not have been clearer. Structure matters. Detail matters. So take it away here and help uh, the the companies, the executives that are listening to this podcast understand the practical aspect, the questions that you're asked, and what would be helpful for these corporate executives to know before they contact E4E Relief to open a fund. Great. Happy to do so, uh, Ted. E4E Relief is a a public charity that offers um, employee relief programs to companies, and we are uh, particularly uh, impacted and and, and available to help companies who are looking at COVID-specific responses or looking at developing employer-sponsored relief programs for the long haul. Um, We're getting hundreds of calls right now from companies who are interested, and they're really talking about a variety of, of things when they call. Um, but one of, the, one of the main considerations that we talk to companies about is who they want to help in their employee base, what, what does that eligible employee look like, and how much relief they intend to provide to those employees, uh, how many people are they trying to help. And, and we end up sort of counseling them and walking them through a process as it relates to um, a way to uh, divide that employee base in in times like this, and so that might be. Holly, the let type me of stop job. you there. Let, before you go further, let me stop you there because I want to I want to accentuate the points that you just made because these are critical to establishing the fund. Correct? You need to establish the qualified group, right? So who can be eligible for these funds? So give us an example of of what that might look like. So so I'm a company coming to you. I don't know what that means. What's a qualified group? How might that be organized? Well, I think, you know, normally without without a COVID response, we, we would maybe be providing it to the entire employee base. But what's happening right now is that people are um, looking at trying to isolate by type of job, by geography, by um, those that have contracted the illness or those that are under particular types of isolation or quarantine. Um, Maybe it's a particular part of the world that has been more uh, hard hit than other parts of the world. Um, So while an employer-sponsored program like this um, or employee relief fund would normally be in many instances accessible to all full-time employees or all full-time and part-time employees with certain criteria established by the company in the setup of the relationship. In a COVID situation, we're finding that maybe the um, that is being continually narrowed, you know, to, to talk to folks about who they want to help and in what way they want to help. And that's in part okay. because people are trying to decide if they have the right funding stream and they have, uh, you know, what funding do they have? Where is it coming from? Are they planning to fundraise from their existing employees, from vendors, from partners, or do they have funding ready to go? 
and that funding stream in this so, particular COVID environment is directly related to this group that you want to support. Right, but but it's important to define that group ahead of time. You can't you can't sort of do that on the fly when you're establishing the fund. It's established for a group, and then the second part of that that you that you mentioned is what will the benefits be? What could they apply for? That also needs to be established uh, for the fund up front, right? So that's sort of open and fair to all of the qualified members of that qualifying group. That's correct. So E4E um, will spend a lot of time providing counsel to the company to help walk them through a process to develop that criteria for who they want to support, um, how much, uh, you know, do we have grant maximums, what do those grant maximums look, look like in an environment like this where volume may be very high, um, and, you know, this concept around are they coming on, on board during a time where they would like to establish a long-term program but they're trying to create something specific for COVID and then something for the long term. Most of the companies that we work with have decided to, in essence, you know, outsource this. They did not create their own private foundation grant-making portfolio. They did not create a public charity, but they, or they might have created one and now they're terminating it and moving it into a release fund. But they are looking at some, doing something for the long haul for, as you said, weather-related disasters, future weather-related disasters, and personal hardships that are impacting both the HR department within the company and the employee base, as well as just the normal corporate social responsibility response for companies and C-suite execs who want to support their employees in situations like this where there are devastating impacts at, at play. Okay, Troy. I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. I did want to focus in on establishing the qualified group and then establishing what can the benefits be. Um, so it, it, let me let you get back to, again, those practical aspects of what corporations need to know before they open a fund. Sure. Um, no, I think what you asked me is, is one of the more critical questions um, in terms of how we work with companies on the front end is, is who they want to help and how much. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, what is the timing? How quickly do they want to move? Um, what parts of the organization will need to be involved? Do they have the CEO or C-suite buy-in for the program? All of those things will impact the funding stream and the ability to move quickly. So, again, in an environment like this, people are calling and wanting to move immediately on COVID-specific programs in a, in a, quote, normal environment um, you know, it would be more of a, you know, four to six week process probably to work through those criteria, identify the eligible employees and funding streams and work through their own internal requirements. Um, and so, you know, I guess one of the things I would say is it's, it's not the best time to open a program is not when a disaster is happening, but rather um, when a disaster is not happening so that all of the normal practices that a company would want to put into play in reviewing and being part of this kind of decisioning would be able to go its normal pathway. Now, I will say this kind of a disaster does tend to move things along and make some of that stuff uh, easier and, and internally. And for the, for the players that are trying to drive these programs internally, sometimes, you know, there's nothing more than a crisis to help people move faster to get things done. But, you know, once people make the decision to create the program, then one of the things that we talk to them about is um, how do you communicate and build awareness around the program? What will be the best practices 
to roll out this type of program to your employees so that they know it exists and they can apply. There's a real art, if you will, to um, letting people know that it's there, telling stories about uh, other grant-making programs and how those have been impactful, or telling stories about existing employees who've been helped in other situations. And those, tend, those things tend to really build awareness about, about the program. Also, I would talk a little bit more about funding streams. You know, in an, an environment like this, I think people are really trying to figure out, can they realistically fundraise in this environment for these programs? Will employees want to give to other employees? And it really is um, depending upon the industry. Um, certain industries have vendors and partners lined up and ready to help certain kinds of employees, and others, you know, the industries are really suffering. In a normal environment, though, the, the one of the best things about these programs is that they really are a peer-to-peer -peer funding mechanism where I can be an employee of a company, I can make a gift to the fund, and I can feel like I helped my colleague down the road when something comes up. So it's really sort of a pay-it-forward kind of concept using the, you know, kind of the, the latest technology tools. And I think one of the things that um, working with a partner like E4E Relief brings is, is the infrastructure, the technology, the data privacy and security, the partnerships like we built with CAP America around international grant making. We bring all of those things to the table in a turnkey concept that's ready to go for the corporation that they otherwise would have to build themselves. And so it, it allows for readiness planning in this kind of environment. You know, all the companies that we work with, and we, we support almost 3 million employees across the U.S. and, and the globe, um, and of those companies and employees we work with, Everybody we already signed up prior to COVID had a readiness plan in place, and we were ready to go with right. applications right. for them. And so, and Holly, really let's does, not uh, let's not minimize the experience that you bring across uh, companies, right? So, any one company, as as Dave mentioned, you know, could establish there there are some legal hurdles to establishing and, and running your own program. Uh, he, have, he advises uh, to work with a public charity like yours, but you represent many companies. And so the experience and, and the, the broad view from all those companies helps benefit the next company uh, signing up. We only have a couple minutes left, so I'm going to bring uh, Dave Shevlin uh, back in to, uh, to join uh, Holly Welsh-Stubbing here as we uh, wrap up here. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Dave, uh, please uh, just uh, sort of your parting thought here uh, on, on the show, and then uh, Holly will give you an opportunity to give your uh, parting advice as well. So, Dave? Uh, unprecedented crisis, great needs um, that need to be met fast. Um, think about using an organization with the established infrastructure and expertise to help your company. Um, you won't be sorry. Uh, with this kind of complexity of legal requirements, they're easy to trip up, but we need to get the need uh, and the help out there quickly. So um, think, think hard about uh, using a, a service provider like you've heard today. Terrific. Thank you, Dave. And uh, Holly, well stubbing, your uh, final advice to listeners of this podcast. E4E Relief um, recently conducted the first research that we believe it's the only research that's ever been conducted on employee relief grant making. 
And one of the things, we haven't released the survey yet, but one of the main things that that survey said was that even those who feel, who, who were declined from a grant, which is not that many people, but those that were declined and those that were awarded feel more connected and engaged with their company as, as a result of having the employee relief program. So I think one thing we really haven't touched on today is, is what it does for the business to have this kind of response to employees in a disaster. They feel more loyal to your firm for having taken, you know, taken the, the responsibility of creating this kind of program. And so E for E Relief, you know, stands ready to work with companies who have this kind of compassionate view on their employee base. And really, you know, in large part because of our relationship with CAP America, we can not only make grants in the U.S., but we can make those grants all over the world in the right kind of way and with confidence that we're handling things like they should be handled, you know, to your point, Ted, because of our experience with various industries and companies over now 19 years. That's terrific. Holly Welsh-Stubbing, President and CEO of E4E Relief, uh, thank you so much for being our guest here on the Caring and Funding Podcast. And Dave Shevlin, Head of Exempt Organizations Practice at the law firm Simpson Thatcher, thank you for helping us understand employee emergency and hardship relief funds. Uh, the summary, I think, here is work with those who know what they're doing. Make sure that you are properly structuring this so that you can be the compassionate company that is supporting employees in crisis. Thank you so much for being here on the Caring and Funding Podcast. You've been listening to the Caring and Funding Podcast, powered by Cap America. Tell all your friends and colleagues to check out our archives, sign up for our free newsletter, and download our iPad and iPod-friendly podcasts at capamerica.org. Thanks for listening to the Caring and Funding Podcast.